Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Greasy! Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. Good morning once again, and this is Coach Chuck Creasy, and it's another week of American Tennis. And we are back, and we're going to keep a regular schedule now on Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, you can listen to American Tennis. And the programs will be everything from interviewing different people to discussing what's going on with American Tennis right now. And there's so much that we have to talk about and so much that is going on. I've got a fantastic guest today. Um, this is the tennis great, legendary Roy Barth, and I'm really excited to have him on when he calls in here in a few minutes. Uh, Roy has a new book out. It's called Point of Impact, and most of you probably know who Roy Barth is. He played with all of the greats from Borg and Laver to Rosewall and all of them uh, back in the 1960s and the 70s, and Roy Barth is a four-time Hall of Famer. He is a two-time All-American at UCLA. He grew up in San Diego, California, and we're going to have him on the program here shortly in a few minutes uh, when we get him on. But I wanted to just say that, first of all, every week we try to address issues. We ask you to stay professional, address issues, not people, and you can pretty much say anything you want to say. We've been every week trying to talk about something different, and recently we've been addressing the five sleeping giants of American tennis. Those things that if we got after it, folks, if we got after it, we could really make a big, big difference in American tennis. There are five sleeping giants. I want to talk about those in just a second, but daggone it, is it, could it be any more noticeable? Could it be any more straightforward on what's going on? with uh, our programs and, and everything that we have not had anybody, anybody in the USA break out of the pack yet. Now, I, I granted, these the uh, 
U.S. Open and the French Open five-set matches. Five-set matches. We've had some of the guys in the men's side get to the final uh, set of the five-set matches, but nobody's come through and won it. And I think that is a daggone indication. Not just – I'm not going to ra- uh, hack on the training that goes on with USC. I'm not going to hack on the organization's – but doggone it, we need to be playing full set matches. Without a doubt, we need to be playing full set matches. It it just doesn't even register. Uh, we want to in a minute. We will we will start talk to Roy. Roy will be coming on here in a second, and uh, he just came on the air here, and I'm going to get him up and, and talk about his ideas. But again. We've been talking about the five sleeping giants. We've got to do something, folks. We uh, haven't made a splash on the men's side since, gosh, what, 2002, I guess, was our last Grand Slam champion. Now, if you look at it, that's 19 years times four Grand Slams. I think that is 19 to 78. Am I saying that right? Is 70? No, 72 tries. 72 tries in 18 years, 76 tries in the we are not doing what we need to do, and we'll try to look for some of those answers. Well, in the days when the USA dominated world tennis, uh, it was back in the 50s. Well, the 50s were always Australian, and in the 60s, Australia and the USA battled. But we always had our players there up at the top in the world. And people argue that it was partly because the Eastern Europeans weren't in, I think you had South Americans, but the Asians and Europeans weren't in there. I think it was much more. I think it was a combination of the college programs were tremendous. The matches were intense. They were long and tough. We played complete matches. And the players often went from college and made the transition into the pro ranks with without uh, all of the – I don't want to say catering to, but doggone it, we we do everything we can for players now, and we give them training, we give them the nutrition, we give them all the opportunities, but still we don't have people breaking out. We have a lot of people that are very good. We have a lot of people in the top 100 in the world, but we are not seeing anyone reach championships, and we don't see anybody really now, I guess, in the top ten. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. I've always argued that the college ranks are not doing the training. That has always been our training ground. Well, I'm real anxious today to uh, talk to our guest, Roy Barth. And, Roy, it is wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you for coming on. I'm real excited about your new book. It's called Point of Impact, and that's I was that's a pretty darn good uh, title for for a book. I think that uh, people are going to want to uh, read this, and we're anxious to hear about it. Welcome on to the program, there, Roy. Well, well, thank you. I'm glad to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Good. Pleasure. I wanna, My pleasure. I've talked a little bit about you already, Roy, but you grew up in San Diego, went to UCLA, and that had to have been a dream of yours growing up there in San Diego to be able to go to either Southern Cal or UCLA. They pretty much dominated uh, college tennis back in those days. There were a few other programs, I think, back. In, you had like a William & Mary and back when Tut Bartson played, and you had actually a Tulane had good program, Northwestern with Reeson and Gabe, uh, Grabner, I believe. 
They they had pretty Chuck good McKinley tennis going at, on. Chuck McKinley at Trinity had a good team. Uh, Mavery um, had Stockton and McKinley. Um, right, so right. But pretty much California dominated. You guys yeah. dominated it out there, right? So that was pretty much a dream of yeah. yours growing up, right? Right. My father, also my father played for UCLA back in the 30s. And uh, on his team was J.D. Morgan. He played with J.D. And J.D. ended up being the tennis coach, and uh, so he knew of me. And uh, and so I was able to 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 uh, have him look at me my, my senior year or my junior year. And luckily, well, how- um, I was a really good doubles player in the juniors, and um, I was like top five in the nation singles and number one or two in doubles. And um, – I played basketball as well in high school, and I broke my ankle my junior year, so it sort of set back my tennis that year. So uh, J.D. Uh, was on the on the edge on, on off me a scholarship, but the doubles got me in. And once I got there, my doubles ability improved my singles ability and um, helped me, uh, my serve and volley and my return, and, and it really helped helped me a lot at UCLA and that, that was my dream. I always wanted to go to UCLA. Well, that that that's fantastic. I'd, I'd like could you talk a little bit? We obviously are doing a great job in the United States of getting kids into tennis. But there's a big difference between playing tennis and being a tennis player. Could you talk a little bit about your journey when you were a youngster? You you got into tennis probably because of your father, right? And and uh, right, your family right. in it. And could you talk about that journey and sort of how that went and what you had to go through back in those days to to be outstanding? Well, I, I grew up at a public facility uh, in San Diego called Morley Field. And um, what's great about it is a lot, of, a lot of kids used to just play there during the summertime and, and uh, we'd hang out in the summer when I was 9 and 10 years of age. But I was very fortunate to have some really excellent, excellent instructors. My father realized, even though he's a good player, that it's very difficult to teach your own son. And um, as a favor to my father, uh, Maureen Conley, after she was injured and got off the tour, uh, was willing to teach my sister and I and around two or three other oh juniors who, who, uh, who uh, my dad used to play her as a little girl. And so as coming up, and so my sister and I were able to take from her for three years and uh, during my development years, and she taught me so much that instilled in me, um, for example, she taught me work ethic at a very young age. She said, don't waste your time at the courts for four or five hours. You're not efficient. It's better to work really intense for a short period of time, like two hours, and then get away so you're not jaded from tennis. She said, enjoy other other things in school, um, you know, play other sports to get away from tennis. So it was like, you got to take breaks. And so so she um, had the concept of a periodization, which they call that now. And um, she also taught me never, ever feel sorry for your opponent. Um, no, ever let up because um, once you do, they can come back and beat you. You can still be a nice person and still beat someone. And you can be friends with them after the match, but during that match, never let up. And then my my older son, my younger son, Sandon, went to Wimbledon a few years ago and bought me a book um, that they sold about 
had all the draws of Wimbledon since 1888. And I looked at the years that Maureen played, and every match was like two in love, one in one, three in one. I mean, she really kept the pressure on. So I was very lucky, and I, I loved ten, I, I loved winning. And um, it was it's inside you. Either you have or you don't. You got to have that desire, and and the right instruction as well. And, um, and so that got me going uh, big time in those first three years. Um, competed. They had no academies back then. You had to find your own playing partners. I'd play with older men, good women players if I could find them. It was not easy. That was the hardest thing to find people to play with compared to what they have now. I mean, the academies are just are given to them. Um, but you really had to work. You really had to have the desire yourself. You had to do it yourself. So the journey, when you started out, you knew about the journey because you were around, I mean, your father and then, my golly, Marine Conley. I mean, most people don't know who Little Mo was, and she's still only the only female player to ever win the Grand Slam in the, the same Slam. year. Yeah. That she is she the only nine or ten grand. She won nine or ten Grand Slam titles, singles, doubles, and mixed by the time she was 19. And oh then my. she had her horseback riding accident that broke her leg, and, and she was finished um, at 19 years of age. And um, she was one. She was the greatest tennis player up until 1954, up until that time. And who knows how long she, she could have played. You know, she was that good. And um, I, I go on YouTube and watch her hit, and, and she believed that the bigger the point, the, the harder you should hit it, you should hit out. And, um, and she really emphasized footwork and she worked me so hard when I was 13 uh, my dad and I went to Scottsdale Arizona and spent a weekend with her uh, when she moved she worked me so hard I threw up on the court um, she never hit a ball right to me she always made me hit hit on the run and that really helped my game um, a lot of kids now just drill cross court cross court in these academies but when you have to hit a ball on the run they can't do it so that's something I really appreciated Marine teaching me because you're running all the time uh, after the ball. But any, she, any, she was uh, a big influence on my life. It's tremendous. She now you influence. you went to college. You went to college at UCLA, and then you play. Uh, you've got you played for like five or seven years, but you played in four Wimbledon championships, and right. Um, right. Right, and uh, what's what's your best memories there, or what you you could talk about? Is that where you did you push Borg to five sets at Wimbledon? Was that where you pushed him? No, or that was, was at the that... U.S. Open. Yeah. Oh wow! I did I did better at the Open uh, for some reason because the end of the season, I think my game was even better after playing all summer. Um, my first Wimbledon was the best match. I was down two sets to love against Clark Gravener. Um And I found out I got into Wimbledon at the NCAs in San Antonio. So I got a telegram. So I flew over to London, never been overseas. <laughs> Luckily, it rained the next day because I didn't have a chance to get used to the time change. And the day that I was to play him, the subways were on strike. And I couldn't get to the Queens Club to practice or, or have lunch or anything. I didn't know what to do. So I finally found a, a taxi 
got there, didn't have a chance to warm up. I barely got to the to the to Wimbledon. I was an hour late. Gravener was on the court, and they did not default me because they knew the subways were on strike. I was down two sets of love, two five down match point, my serve, and I didn't give up. I just hung in there, and I broke them. Hell broke, and I won the set. And it didn't start raining. We played the next day. I was, had a good warm-up, had lunch, went over there. I was down 5-3 in the fourth, came back, won that set. Oh, my. Now we're in the battle. Now it's one all, two all, three all. And I'm starting to get a rhythm on my serve volley. I was winning easily. And um, I could sense he was tightening. And he was talk, talking to um, his friends on the side, trying to – he's calling me names as I changed sides of the court. So I changed the other side. Um and I had a shot of beating him, and I was very unlucky. I did. And I ended up, he had two winners. I was on my serve at 9, 10, 30 all. He had two return serve winners to uh, to win the match, 11, 9, the fifth. Well, wow. uh, that was a very memorable match for me. Um, but uh, here I am alone, don't have an entourage. I came off the court discouraged because I had a shot to win it. And Billie Jean King came up to me and said, Roy, you know, you know what you have what it takes when you play well at Wimbledon. And so she, that was a nice thing for her to say because, um, you know, um, I was pretty uh, down on myself. But Clark went on in the semifinals, you know, so, you know, he was a hell of a player. It was just, it proved to me, though, if you never should give away a point, ever. You never know what can happen in tennis, and you can always come back. And um, that's what I learned in that match. And that was a memorable match for me. But the U.S. Open, um, um, I did better. I, I got to the third round twice in my best year in 69. I got to the fourth round and uh, lost to Roy Emerson in the fourth round. And um, and then two years later, three years later, I, I lost to Borg 6-2 in the fifth um, on center court at the U.S. Open. That was a t- really a tough match. I was a point away from serving for the match. That's how close I got. <laughs> well, but he was you tough. know, there was a... I mean, he was fresh Let's as go ahead. He, he was, he was like running like a gazelle in the fifth set. And um, and I'm 25. I'm in good shape, but man, it, you know, my body was depleted, totally depleted. And so it's so much of it's conditioning and this humidity. You know, now I think with the trainers they have now and nutrition and, and psychologists they have and people to help you, I, you know, I could have probably got through that match. But um, it's tough. It's, it's a tough circuit out there. You know, but there's a couple of things. You know, if I could jump in, there's a couple of things you're saying here that if you could address. Number one, you were playing in college, and you got invited to play at Wimbledon. From 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 right. the NCAA tournament, and I remember, I think Ralston. One time, I had him on the program, Dennis Ralston. I think he won the NCAA's in doubles and flew right over to Wimbledon to play. So, a lot we yeah. had a lot of we had a lot of players coming right out of college and going into professional yeah. ranks. Now, the question right. becomes: is that is that because there's so much more depth now that it's so much harder? Are our U.S.A. players 
not doing what they need to to move up in the ranks, or is there something missing with the transition and the steps that we need to be taking in order to move forward? I mean, but that, that's a tough question. That, that's a tough yeah. question. There's there is a lot more competition, uh, as you know, from Asia, from Eastern Europe. It's, it, it's they're doing a big time. They're putting all these resources into their programs. And so there's so much competition, and you've got to be really hungry. You know, it's uh, sometimes in our society, um, especially the juniors, the players are told how great they are when they win the Nationals when they're 12 or 13. And, and so they protect their rankings, and they don't really develop to improve their games as much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think being spoiled like that doesn't help um, in our society. Um, over in Europe, it's not so much. You know, they really have to work hard. Um, you know, Martina had to take a train two hours a day to do, or a bus to get to her club to work out, you know, and um, she didn't really, I don't think, play a tournament until she's 13. So, I, you know, I just think it's a society thing. Uh, our, our young kids are spoiled. Um, you know, the, everybody carries their bags for them and they have coaches with them and you know, well, I mean, back your, your parents the, sent back you to day, Wimbledon. We Roy, Roy your, your parents sent you to Wimbledon by yourself your senior yeah. year. Did you yeah. did you flew by yourself? This was 1968. Yes. Yes. In 1968, you, you 69. Yeah, 68 so was you, my first Wimbledon. 68. Right. Yeah. Well, was, where was the NCAA's held? Yeah. Right. Where was the NCAA's held that year? Where were you playing? That at? year, San Antonio. Uh, Trinity in San Antonio. So at Trinity, you flew to probably New York. Then you had to change planes, and you had to fly to England. Was anybody there to meet you? You just you just figured it out. No, I was all alone. I never traveled overseas. I mean, it was an adventure, but I just you know, um, luckily the the college um, instead of paying for my way from San Antonio back to L.A., they let me have that money to go towards my trip to Europe. And they so that's what helped me get overseas. And um, luckily I had a good match with Gravener, and Gravener introduced me to tournament directors that that ran tournaments in Europe. So he helped me line up five tournaments that summer. And I got wow. like So you stayed over there. Housing. Yeah. So you stayed, you stayed, you stayed in, yeah. Yeah, I went over to Europe because luckily um, Graymer um, was nice enough actually to introduce me to some German tournament directors, and and I played in Switzerland and I had a great experience and realized how tough it was to play in red clay, and it helped my game, no doubt about it. But I had to, had to do it all alone, and uh, it made me very independent. That's what's good about tennis; it makes you really accountable for yourself. And um, and I learned that that summer, um, it was quite an adventure. Well, I, I you know hard. I can't you imagine now. <laughs> I cannot imagine without an entourage, the way that people. Uh, maybe the world's a little different, but I I can't think it's that that it, it, that is just mind-boggling though, to think about that. Is a senior, you get on a plane and you go. But that's what we had to do. Yeah. Even after yeah. 18 years old, you might be going to Vietnam, though, back in, back in those days at 18 years old. So it's, it was 
not much difference. That's fantastic. Your book is called The Point of Impact, but you have the, the subtitles, Dream It, Play It, Teach It, and Write It. And I, I think that was yep. fantastic. I mean, you're talking about the dream part of it here. Once you went to Wimbledon and you started playing in Europe, you knew that you had enough game. So your confidence must have shot through the roof. Could you talk about a few of the key things that really catapulted you? I mean, I, you already have with the Wimbledon and, and playing that summer. But when you came back to the United States, did you have a different paradigm, a different viewpoint on everything, sort of like, hey, I can do this? Well, yeah. I remember when, I, when playing Gravener on grass, I mean, my dream was someday to play Wimbledon. Here I am. I realized an overhead is an overhead. You know, I realized, you know, actually, if, if you're playing well, you can win no matter who you're playing, but, but you're playing yourself. You know, it's, it's not playing your opponent. Once you realize you're playing yourself, then then you can play up to your ability, and that that's what I finally realized. Um, after being around the top players, um, I started working on my own game and and came up with my own game plan and not worried about what they were going to do. And that really raised my level uh, in confidence and, uh, and realized I'm uh, actually, I was accountable for my, my own success. And, um, and, you know, so that really made an impact on me. Well, it's time for you to give us a few top teaching points. You've already let a few out. I mean, with Maureen Connolly, she said, Always make sure you're hitting out on big points. Never, ever slow your racket head down. Uh, but you've you've said a couple of the other things as well. Could you well, talk about what the difference is between maybe being a good player and a great player, a few, a few of those things? Um, well, one is positive thinking. Um, to be a great player, you, you've got to not have any negative thoughts. And you got to go, um, got to realize different opportunities in the match that will break the match wide open. You cannot let those opportunities slide. Mm-hmm. And um, you got to work the point around your best shot. Uh, my best shots was my forehand and my volley. So if anybody had a second serve against me, on grass especially, I would go to the net and try to dominate with my volley. And um, so you got to know what your strengths are. And um, and on a break point to serve for the match, you got to go with your best shot. You know, don't don't want to waste it. And you got to realize also, your opponent has pressure on him. So don't put all the pressure on yourself. You know, think what he's thinking, and and um, realize he can't take a chance. He's down match point. So sometimes it's good just to return serve right at him and make him um, have a chance to choke. Um, so you got you got to learn how to mentally get through through these key points with confidence. And uh, my friend so Bob that's Lutz, five. That, that's five. Let me go over these again, and let's get some more if you can. All right, hit big yeah. at big time. Here's how I wrote these down, folks. You kids, you youngsters listening out there, and and coaches and parents. At big times, you've got to hit. You you've got to hit the ball. Doesn't mean to check out, but it means you've got to hit the ball. You can't wait. <laughs> hit it. You know, and the the 
focus just on positive thoughts, not negative thoughts. See your opportunities when they're in front of you and take them. Do not wait. You've got to take them. Because winning a match might be a right 1-2-15-30 in the third set. That might be the biggest point. Right, Roy? And then work around Absolutely. your strengths. Absolutely. Work, work to your strengths. And then understand, focus on the pressure the other person has. You know, in other words, you don't have to play perfect. Make sure they, they you know, focus on their pressure. Those are, those are all, all great things that are still, still very, very uh, applicable right now, Roy. Uh, any others? Because I'm writing these down. I'm going to use these with my, things with my team for sure. Any, any well, others that know, come to mind? What really helped me and uh, my ne- next instructor after Marine left, um, I, I worked with Les Stolfen at the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. And Les was a former Wimbledon doubles champion in 1934. He was six feet four, had the best serve in the game at the time. And uh, Stan Smith used to drive down from L.A. when he was 20 years old to work on a serve with, with Les Stolfen. And what really impacted me on Les is that he taught me how to watch the ball properly. And that's where the, you know, almost the title came from, the point of impact. He said that most common error is people look up at the point of impact. So he said the bigger the point, the longer you stay at the point of impact. Because the tendency under match point or up or down, you want to see if you're going to win or lose. You stay in that point and let the, your, your follow-through hit the ball, not your head. And that will keep you from choking the point. And I, you know, like if anybody ever missed an easy overhead, is because their heads are looking down. So he taught me, and easy overheads never look down at all. And I, and that helped me so much. I didn't miss any easy overheads in college or the pros because that one tip. I exaggerated, keep my eyes up on the point of impact, and because um, it's not, it, you know, if it comes back, you have plenty of time to see it come back. But the, everybody likes to see the big overhead and, and shank it on big points. And you rarely, rarely see the top pros miss overheads because they discipline themselves not to look down. And uh, that really impacted well, my, my Well, game. I, you know, and the thing is, as far as your game overall, as far as anything you do overall, that where there is pressure, I mean, keeping your eyes on the point of impact. I mean, how big of a lesson is that? For everybody, everybody out there, eyes on the point of impact. When the pressure comes, you be there with the pressure. I, Roy, I always say, if you focus, you don't need any hocus pocus. And yeah. uh, I want to talk about your book, The Point of Impact. I got, I got to do a commercial here for about 30, 45 seconds, and I'm going to throw in a, 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 something about your book here. So I'm hoping that we can get it. First of all, how can people get your book, you know, so we can mention that? Well, they can go on Amazon and uh, put my name in, and, and the uh, Roy Bart, the hard copy will come up, and the ebook will come up as well. Okay. And, um, and so they're they're available right now. That that's fantastic. That's fantastic, and we'll bring those up if if we just hold on, Roy. I want to talk about the book and how you put it together and everything. But uh, if you could just hold on a few minutes or a minute or two. And, and we'll, we will be right back here with with Roy Barth, and this is Coach Chuck Creasy in American Tennis.
And this is Coach Chuck Creasy, and folks, usually I am pushing my book, Coaching Tennis, it's been out there 20 years now, and folks, you can still go to Amazon and get copies of this coaching book. It's about the physical, the mental, and the emotional part of the training, but today I also want to push Roy Barth's Point of Impact book. Go to Amazon, and you will get more lessons already in the program. You've heard many but you will get more lessons than you could ever dream of, and you'll learn so much about this fantastic sport that we call tennis. And if you'll go to Amazon, you can get Point of Impact, and you can also get Coaching Tennis. And we'd ask you to tell your friends and your neighbors about Roy Barth's new book called Point of Impact. Chuck Creasy, and we have uh, Roy Barth on the program today. His book is called Point of Impact, and uh, we really want to try to get to the meat and potatoes of the book. I just love the um, the subtitles, Dream It. You know, through your youth, I, I really am disappointed so much right now with how the kids have so much information Roy, and how they have so much information, it's really, really hard to give them dreams. When you talk to them about something that is a big goal out there, let's climb this mountain, very often they'll go right to their uh, Google on their cell phones and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, if I want to do that, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. And there's just too much of a reality check. And even at playing a big tournament, the kids will go to, this is the curse. Do not, folks, let your kids get on the computer and size up how tough that journey is in going after that dream. Do not let them size up because every prize has a price and every prize has a pain. If they know at the start of the journey how hard something is, very often they won't even try to climb. And our our kids are looking at tournaments going, wow, they're an 11.6 UTR. I'm only a 10. I can, and, Roy, I'm just thinking that if you'd gone to Wimbledon and you're going up against Clark Gravener there in the first round and you said, wow, he is a 14.9 UTR and I'm only a 12.5 it could have been a 6-2-6-2-6-2 match. But instead, once you got on the court, you gained your confidence. Correct? Talk about that a little bit about, you know, going for your dreams, first of all. You know, as you go through a dream it, play it, teach it, and write it. But do you think, do you think I'm correct there when I'm, when I'm talking about how kids size well, stuff up? Well, you know, what I, what I did as a junior, you know, my goal was someday to play college tennis. There was no... And uh, and then Wimbledon was something that, of course, I loved to do. But at 12 years old or 13, I I really focused on trying to get the highest 
ranking I can get in my age division and um, and try to improve at my level, not worrying about the future. And if you do that, every step of the way, you're going to improve. And people around you who didn't keep up will be dropping like flies around you. I can't tell you the number of players who quit tennis by the time I was 16 that started with me when I was 12. So you just chip away at it. You have to learn um, to get over losses and, and try to figure out why, how you need to improve and just keep improving, and you'll slowly move up the ranks. And um, you can't get too overwhelmed by, by saying how hard it is to, to get a college scholarship. You can't worry about that. You've got to worry, work on your game each step of the way and try to get the best results you can in your, in your own age division. And uh, then things will happen, you know. But I think it's good to be all around player. You know, I'm really not happy that there's not much doubles being played now. Right. And, um, doubles really excelled my my career and uh, big time, and um, it helps your your all around game. And uh, if someone if you're playing someone who's better than you in a backcourt, you're going to lose unless you have an alternative, and that's going to the net and and um, cut down their targets. And um, and so I think you need to develop all-around game as a junior. So you have doubles ability, so you, you attract to uh, to colleges. Because they still need doubles. And um, if you're singles and doubles player, I think you'll be a great asset to a college team. Um, so anyway, here, that's here, how I look at it. Here, here's the thing that I, I really believe. Okay, now you were self-motivated. You were driven even as a youngster, you just had something special in you. Now, people out there listening say, well, he was just, he was just one of the few that have the it factor. Sometimes I, I always say very many, a lot of people have the ABC fundamentals, but not so many have the X factor. And then you have those that have the X factor. Sometimes they don't have the ABC fundamentals. But you had a chance to have both. But here's what I believe, and tell me what you think about that. I think about 20% of the people are driven, and they really are just high achievers. I think 20% of the people just aren't going to be, ever be driven. And then I think 60% of us in the middle have to sort of learn how to do it, and that's where we're at with our kids right now. Do you think we give them too much too soon? I mean, you got a lot in the way of help but people didn't sound like people did not enable you and there's a difference. And, uh, it, right. it's a great yeah. story. I mean, you, you at the park, you working for everything, uh, probably coming home all the time and saying, I, I think this is the next step. I'm going to go. There's a lot of doubt, but tell me, do, do you, do you feel that we probably enable, uh, kids and try to paint their pathway too much for them now? Yeah, you know, I I see what they have now. I mean, things are given to them. I don't think they really realize how lucky they are um, in these these academies. I mean, they have all these kids to practice with every day. Um, it's something that they take it for granted. I think, um, you know, that it's it's a whole different world now. They they're given um, they get away they get get scholarships to these um USTA weekends to work with different people there there there's so much more help out there now um i just don't know if they really take it for granted or not um 
I was lucky to to have a lesson once every two or three weeks for for half an hour or an hour, and that was it. Right. And then I had to well, work talk on my about own that. Game. That's that's important point here. Parents, are you do you hear this? Every two or three weeks you had a lesson, and then in the meantime you had to go out and scrap it out at your park. Yes. Yep. You had to find people to play with. You call people. You uh, play sets. You drill. Um, you had to figure it out yourself. And then when you, you felt you needed help, you, you call up and get another lesson. And um, then you work on on that whatever he worked with you on the volley or whatever. And um, and uh, you take the key things he t- teach you and just work on them. Um, so that was that was a different era. Like I said. Um, Luckily, I was motivated to find people to play with, and um, and the weather was good in San Diego, so I was able to play a lot. When I got older, I used to hit with some of the better girl women players or girl players. They were, they were steady and everything, and um, you know, it steadied down my game. They weren't real powerful, but but um, but they were steady. Val Ziegenfuss, who was one of the original nine right. players, who signed with Billie Jean King. She grew up with me in San Diego, and I used to practice with her a lot. And um, you see, we wouldn't play with our competitors, you know, because they're our competitors, So, um, which is too bad because uh, we could really improve with each other at, at the time. But I'd have to go up to Los Angeles to practice, say, the weekend to practice with Bob Lutz, who's a top player in the nation. And I play doubles with them, and so I'd have to go up two hours to find more competition when I was 16. So there wasn't that much around San Diego at the time. So, yeah, we had to look for it, you know, it wasn't easy. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's no uh, stale bone for uh, the hungriest dog, right? (laughs) You know, know, the hungriest dog gets the freshest meat, however you want to say that. But it all yeah. comes down to hunger. Where are we missing the boat with USA? We seem to have some of the best juniors in the world. We've done very, very well. And it's somewhere around 16, 17 in there. And it's not just the fact that they discover other things in their lives and they they go off. But somewhere we're losing the dream there. Do you think that there's too much of a reality check in the uh, – or just too many other opportunities? I mean, okay, plan B, what were you going to do if you did not become a a professional tennis player? Did you have a plan yeah, B when yeah. you were a youngster? Well, the plan B was um, you have to go to college, and if you dropped out, you're in the military. And um, so we couldn't look beyond college. And so there, you go. there wasn't any future. There wasn't any future. And um, I, I was very fortunate that um, when they started the, the the they stopped the draft and, and, and had the lottery in 1969 in December, my I, my lottery number my birth date was not drawn, so I, I didn't have to go in the military during the Vietnam yep. War, and um, you know which a lot of people did, and I was able to play the professional tennis tour instead. So that was the first time that. Oh my God! I can actually play professional tennis, and I never thought that as a dream because I didn't think it was possible because of the war. Now the kids can drop drop out of school any time and um, and try to uh, play professional tennis, and and it's so tough. It's tough to make it. 
I recommend to go to college and get that degree so you have options. And uh, it really, the discipline I learned in college at UCLA in economics helped me uh, in the business world at Kiowa Island, in my, at Kiowa, no doubt about it. And um, so a college education is a must. And uh, you can still play great professional tennis like John Isner and some of the other players have gone to college. You still do well in the pro circuit. You're not missing a thing. So um, right. one, talking about my book, you know, I, I, I come up with life lessons in my journey and also business lessons that I learned through my journey in tennis. And one of the, the uh, life lessons I learned was to get the most out of your talent. And my junior year, I played Bob Lutz at UCLA in front of a home crowd around 3,000. It was on local TV, and I upset him eight, six, and a third, the first time I beat him since I was 16. And it was a big win for me. And I, a week after that, I got a letter from Johnny Wooden, the leg, legendary uh, basketball coach for UCLA, who was at that match. And uh, he, he awarded me the John Wooden Player of the Week Award, oh, UCLA wow. Player of the Week. And uh, he, in the little note, he said, what I like about your match is that you got the most out of your talent. And, um, and so I never forgot that. And, and I think it's very important. There's a lot of talented kids out there, but they're, not, they're wasting their talent. They're not, they're not taking advantage of what they have and not working hard enough, also in school. And um, that same life lesson helped me in the business world at Kiowa um, as far as getting the most out of your talent. Um, Could I tell everybody when, real quick, okay, Roy, 42 years at Kiowa, just so everybody knows, Kiowa, South Carolina, they've named a tennis center after you there, your legend there in, in Kiowa, South Carolina, and in, in South Carolina, 42 years, and um, go go ahead. Well, I, I had 11 bosses and four – four owners over those 42 years. And I had to learn how to stay under the water um, and not cause any waves. So I'd keep my job. I learned, I learned how to, how to maneuver and, and do my job and focus on, on me and, and get the most out of my talent. And I found out by, I, I noticed the competitive resort was getting all the tournaments, all the awards, and I, as competitive as I was, I, I went to the annual meeting of the South Carolina Association, and I found out, my God, I, it's networking. I need to network. And then I got to know the system, got started volunteering for committees, and then I started getting tournaments. I started getting um, more recognition as a resort, and and um, I hung on. I just got the most out of my ability, um, not tennis, but in business. And so that that's a business lesson I learned. you got to really, you know, network and uh, go to other resorts, find out what they're doing to preview your resort. And it's a different type of competition, but you still got to get the most out of your, your own ability as a person. Um, and that's one of the business lessons I learned. And um 
And so that's Absolutely. That example of what, can I, can I throw in, in there book. real quick? I just wrote down here, wrote down here. We were talking about the, the being drafted in your draft number, but I wanted to let everybody know that the great, you know, Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe, and several, Muhammad Ali, they all, Elvis Presley, everybody got drafted back in those days, yep. and they didn't care. They didn't care if you had you were famous or not, and it was a different day, and that was that was part of the motivation, you know, for, for sure. But those life lessons are in your book. What I, again, dream it, play it, teach it. You've taught hundreds of people and helped people, but the networking also. You were in charge of the United States Davis Cup uh, here for a long time. Right. I know I always talk to your son about that. Um, so you, you've, you've had a lot of years doing, doing that as well. Um, no, but, the, and then you know, volunteering, volunteering for the USTA, I got 10 times more back than I would I put into it. It was a great experience. I met business people of different walks of life and, um, traveled throughout the world. And I never dreamt I'd ever go, uh, with the Davis cup team and, and, um, and tennis gave me this opportunity. It, it, tennis is such a great sport, you know, not only playing the game, but also networking and business side of the game. So it, it's so important um, um, to learn the lessons that you learn in tennis. Right, uh, right. It, it, it's, it's really great. Writing, writing the book, Point of Impact. So there's so many people out there that have told me, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book. Well, you know, listen, I, I know as well, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life as far as coaching yes. and everything. The, the amount of focus and the dedication and trying to dig out things that you don't know how to do. Uh, talk about that process and what was what was the pivotal point. I mean, you've had this book idea in you for a long, long time. But what was the pivotal point where you just said, I'm going to do this? And then how, what was the process in going about doing it? Well, around five or six years ago, I was at a South Carolina Association Awards dinner. And Sandin, my second son, was at the same table. And the gentleman next to me asked me, what was it like playing Arthur Ashe back in the 70s? And I gave him a story about my match against Arthur at the U.S. Open at Forest Hills on Grass in 1970. And Sandin said, Dad, I never heard that story. Why don't you start writing these stories down? So I started writing stories down about matches and, and traveling. And then I went back to my roots when I was eight and how I got started in Marine Conley. And, and then I started writing down life lessons that I learned. And then I out, started outlining, okay, let me outline my development in junior year, college years, and pro years, and then I, it just started evolving. You just got to start, and, and then, then once you start, then you, then you write down things that you remember, and then you outline, try to get a, a, a theme throughout the book somehow and come up with a title. So it was a process, but the, the hardest thing is to do is just start it, and then you try to outline it, and then you start writing and take, try to do it same time every day for a couple hours, and then get away, and then and then uh, just keep at it, and um, and then I ran into, uh, I finally wrote my manuscript, 
after a while, and then I retired and had more time to work on it. And um, I was introduced to a, a professional writer um, who loved tennis, he loved Kiowa, and, and he said he'd love to read my manuscript. And he recommended me to, uh, he liked my story up until I got off the tour. He said, but you didn't say anything about how you, why you were successful at Kiowa for 42 years. So I went back to the drawing board and wrote another third of the book about my experience at Kiowa. So I got a little help of people who I trusted or were interested in reading it and giving me some ideas on how I could go in another direction. So it took time, but, but finally um, I, I got it done. So it was and, quite and, you a know, journey. That, I really enjoyed that, that. Well, it it is an unbelievable journey. As, as And the point is about getting it started, and then it, it starts on taking a life of its own. But you are exactly right, right about – you know, the process, if you knew how hard it is, you probably, you don't sit down with the whole plan at first. You just know that this is important. No. I've got to, but the impacting thing, here's my question. And I want to go to, we've got about eight minutes here left. I wanted to go to the sleeping giants that we have in, um, in tennis in, in the USA that we could really have. Now, I'm going to start out by saying, and, and you know this and I know this, but I heard it for the first time in 1980 at the National Teachers Conference in New York. Clarence Mabry was giving a talk, and, and, and he was up there, and the question time, this guy asked, what was the most important quality of a championship tennis player? And he scratched his chin, and he said, and everybody thought he was going to say forehand, backhand. He said, absolutely, the hunger of an inquisitive mind, the kind of mind that continues to ask questions and continues to search for answers. Could you comment on that a little bit? Because that sounds like that is exactly how that evolution, not just, I mean, your whole career has been problem solving and having an inquisitive mind and going after that. But going after this book is a, is a whole, whole different ballgame. I mean, this this is this when what you have this book now. This is now going to in, impact many many lives. I'm sure. Well, I hope it will. Uh, you know, I went through some tough times, and and uh, the tennis discipline that I learned helped me get through them. And um, I can't tell you. You know, you, you're you're trained to think positive thinking. You have to be positive thinker to be a good tennis player. You, you can only think of one thought at a time. You can either be negative or positive. And that discipline through tennis helped me get through tough times in college with a lot of pressure. And then when I got off the tour and, and had some health problems, it, it helped me get through some surgeries I went through, the positive thinking. So all the all the discipline that I learned in tennis helped me throughout my whole life. And uh, I sort of evolved that throughout the book on how the journey of tennis really impacted my whole life in every way. Um, and, um, and so, it, but you got to start thinking this way at, at very young, you know, when you're a teenager, you got to be thinking this way. Um, um, it's something that's hard to learn in, in one week. 
What's really interesting is how you have talked about several of the five-set matches and the tough matches you lost. And this is the Mm -hmm. message to people out there. I believe it's the struggle that you remember. My biggest memory ever, Roy, was a high school match. I won 20 to 18 in the third set. And back in those days, we played full matches. You played your five-set matches. And and, uh, when I read Laver's book, Rod Laver's book this summer, over and over, he talked about his five-set battles. Now, we are making everything easier. We're, you know, uh, you, it, there's a saying, when you champion the weak, you weaken the real champions. We don't have the separators between fair to good and good to great that we did. I mean, but you talk, you're talking about the struggles you had. Do you believe, I mean, I, I'm, it's a leading question, I know, but um, can we ever have a champion again if we don't have the kids uh, play a little bit tougher, tougher uh, levels, or is it just going to be impossible? I don't know. It's up to the individual. Um, everything's there for them to evolve to be a great player in America. they got the tournaments. they got the coaching. So it's up to an individual to have that desire to do it and not be caught up on how great he is. Uh, as a young kid, so he didn't stop. So he didn't uh, stop from improving his game. Um, you know, there, there's some players like Ryan Harrison, who who's really had a lot of talent, but he never, never um, got better. For some, you know, you don't hear his name anymore. And uh, he was on the Davis Cup team when he was only 18, and. Um, he just would go in a temp- temper tantrum in Davis Cup. He'd double fault and, he, and he'd break his rack in a thousand pieces. And that and that's just not a good way to approach the game. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. Um, they've got more opportunities, more help than the, than they've ever had in improving the game. But it's almost too too tef- technical now. They they talk about miles per uh, on the serve and, I mean, on the ground strokes. and It's right. almost too technical. UTR right, athleticism and, over skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Athleticism yeah. over and, skill set. Uh, I often tell players, Roy, I'll say, you are very, very talented but not skilled. I said, you know, you yeah. know the good Lord gives you your talent, but thousands of repetitions give you your skill, focused repetitions. I don't think that kids quite understand that. We got about a minute. Any anything there, Roy? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's where that's how you improve is repetition. There's no doubt about it. I know little Mo would hit two thousand backhand down the lines, two thousand forehand cross courts every day. Oh my! So was you getting a match? It was, it was automatic. Uh, she worked so hard. Um, and she hated to lose more than winning. <laughs> she just hated to lose. And, um, you know, you got to have the inner desire and got to put the time in or else it won't happen. You know, you're right. It's repetition. And right. so when well, you have the opportunity to match, you, you, you're confident you can do it because you've done it in practice. I, I'm very, very anxious to, to read your book. I, I'm just um, very thankful that you've come on the program today because uh, – 
In, in other words, we, we've got to pass stuff on. I always feel like after 60 or so, Roy, if you don't pass on what you got, you look like a burnout rock star looking for a new gig. You, <laughs> you, 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 you've got to pass it on to other people, and you've given us tremendous things today, and I, well, I really, really appreciate I it. it. Okay. Well, thanks, Thank Chuck. you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Folks, it's it's Point of Impact and Roy Barth, and thank you very, very much for being on the program. Come